Chapter Thirty Nine of England, Canada, and the Great War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. England, Canada, and the Great War by Louis Georges Desjardins. Chapter Thirty Nine. Conclusion. My ardent desire to speak the plain truth and only the truth is just as strong today as it was when, in concluding my French work, I summarized the situation such as it was at the end of the year 1916 to show the hard duty incumbent on all the allies canada included it has been perhaps still more intensified by the outrageous efforts of those amongst us whose sole object has been since the outbreak of the hostilities to discourage our people from the herculean task they had bravely undertaken two years have since elapsed years full of great events and of untiring heroism on the part of the glorious defenders of justice and right and i do not see the slightest reason to modify the conclusions i then arrived at as a matter of strict duty unworthy of public confidence is the man who pandering to the supposed prejudices of his countrymen refrains out of weakness or of more guilty considerations to tell them what they are bound to do for their own country for their empire for the world in the supreme crisis of our time true every one is longing for the restoration of peace but few are those who even before being tired of the war were ready to curb their heads under the german yoke are now praying for a compromise between the allies and their enemies there are some left it is sad to admit everywhere they are chased by the indignant public opinion daily growing more determined that millions of heroes shall not have given their lives in vain that millions of others wounded on the fields of battles shall not until the last of them is gone for ever be the betrayed victims of teutonic dastardly ambition true peace is sorely wanted and would be welcomed by the thanksgivings to the almighty of grateful peoples who have borne with undaunted courage such untold and admirable sacrifices to uphold their rights and their honour but it cannot be sued for by the nations whom germany wanted to enslave by the might of her crushing militarism operating under the dictates of a new code of international law of her own barbarous creation thank god the flowing tide of unlimited teutonic ambition let loose over the world more than four years ago has met with inaccessible summits where love of justice respect of right devotion to human civilization obedience to christian law heroism of sacrifices were so deeply entrenched that they could not be reached and conquered from this commanding altitude they not only continued to defy the tyrants bent on dominating the universe but they are mightily smashing their power from the overshadowing point of view which cannot be forgotten or wilfully abandoned nothing has changed since the german empire in her delirious aspirations challenged the world to the almost superhuman conflict by which she felt certain to succeed in realizing her fond dream of universal domination at the outbreak of the war ever since to-day to-morrow there were there are and there will be but three alternatives to the restoration of peace one a victorious german peace imposed on beaten and cowed belligerents the peace of the defeatists two a peace by compromise patched up by disheartened pacifists lured by cunningness winning where force would have failed to succeed to agree to conditions pregnant with all the horrors of a new and still greater struggle in the near future three a peace the result of the indomitable courage and perseverance of all the nations who have joined together to put an end to germany's ambition to rule the world and to destroy the instrument created for that iniquitous purpose prussian militarism there could be a fourth alternative to peace but it would be possible only by a miracle which we can grant without hesitation the world has perhaps not yet deserved 
it would be peace restored by the sudden conversion of germany to the practice of sound christian principles acknowledging how guilty she has been repenting for her crimes agreeing to atone for them as much as possible and taking the unconditional pledge to henceforth behave like a civilized nation all must admit that there is not the slightest hope of such a move from a nation whose autocratic kaiser answering in february last an address presented to him by the burgomaster of hamburg thundered out in his usual blasting manner that the neighboring peoples to enjoy the sweetness of germany's friendship quote, must first recognize the victory of german arms as an inducement to the allies to bow to his wishes he pointed to germany's achievement in russia where a beaten enemy quote, perceiving no reason for fighting longer end quote, clasped hands with the generous huns the world has since learned with appalling horror with what tender mercy the barbarous teutons reciprocated the grasping of hands of defeated russia tendered to them by the bolsheviki's traitors the allies had then to select one of the three above-mentioned alternatives they have made their choice and they will stick close to it until it is achieved by the victory of their arms knowing as they do that the future of their peoples and that of the whole world are at stake they will not waver in their heroic determination to free humanity from germany's cruel yoke viewed from the commanding height it requires to be worthily appreciated the joint military effort of the allies offers a truly grand spectacle daily enlarging and getting more gloriously magnificent all the allies every one of them are doing their duty and their respective share in the great crisis they are pledged to bring to a triumphant conclusion belgium and servia were the first to be martyred but the hour of their resurrection is getting nearer every day france the british empire the united states italy have done and are doing wonders there can there must be no question of appraising their respective merit with the intention of giving more credit either to the one or to the other with the greatest possible sincerity i affirm my humble but positive opinion that each one of the allies has done and is doing with overflowing measure all that courage could and can earnestly perform all that patriotism and the noblest national virtues can inspire france has been heroic to the highest limit the british empire great britain and her colonies has been grand in her unswerving determination to fight to a finish the great american republic is putting forth a wonderful exhibition of pluck of strength of boldness of inexhaustible resources italy has stood nobly with her new friends ever since she broke away from the triple alliance to escape the dishonour of remaining on good terms with the central empires in the shameful depth of their ignominious course she has bravely gone through days of disaster which she has heroically redeemed all the allies bound together by the most admirable unity of purpose only rivalling in the might of their respective patriotic effort have nobly quote, chosen their course upon principle end quote, can never turn back they must move steadily forward until victorious they are indomitable in their decision not to live under any circumstances quote, in a world governed by intrigue and force end quote. echoing the wise and inspiring words addressed by president wilson to congress on the eleventh of february last we can affirm that the quote, desire of enlightened men everywhere is for a new international order under which reason justice and the common interests of mankind shall prevail without that new order the world will be without peace and human life will lack tolerable conditions of existence and development a most encouraging achievement was realized a few months ago emphasizing to the utmost the unity of purpose of the allies every one of them have millions of men under arms and at the front 
it is easily conceived how tremendous is the task of properly directing the military operations of such immense armies unprecedented in the whole human history most patriotically putting aside all national susceptibilities the statesmen governing the allied nations acknowledged the necessity of supporting unity of purpose by unity of military command their decision was heartily approved and applauded by all and everywhere it is important to note the great difference between the standing of the two groups of belligerents with regard to the leadership of the armies whilst the powers dominated by germany and fighting with her are coerced to endure the teutonic military supremacy of command those warring on the side of france have almost cordially agreed to the appointment of a commander-in-chief out of the profound conviction that unity of command was more and more becoming a necessity for the successful prosecution of the war since this most urgent decision has been taken events have surely proved its wisdom and usefulness evidently the same as unity of purpose to bear all its fruits must be wrought out by statesmanship of a high order unity of military command to produce its natural advantages must be exercised with superiority of leadership great statesmen in a free country are successful in the management of state affairs just as much as they inspire an increasing confidence in their political genius developed by a wide experience honesty of purpose a constant patriotic devotion to the public weal great military leaders can do wonders when their achievements are such as to create unbounded reliance on their ability superiority of command proved by victories won in very difficult circumstances is always sure to be rewarded by an enlightened enthusiasm permeating the whole rank and file of an army and trebling the strength and heroism of every combatant added to the widespread renewal of confidence produced by the timely decision of the allies to rely on unity of military command is the reassuring evidence that the commander-in-chief to whom has been imposed the grand task of leading the unified armies to a final and glorious triumph is trusted by all soldiers and others alike the cause for which the allied nations are fighting with so much tenacity and courage being that of salvation of civilization threatened by a wave of barbarism equal at least to if not surpassing any to which humanity has so far survived all must admire the wonderful spectacle offered by those millions and millions of men under arms from so many different countries united under one command into a military organization which can most properly be called the grand army of human freedom it has been said by one who has presided over the destinies of the american republic as the chief of state that peace must be dictated from berlin can we really hope to behold the dawn of such a glorious day it is hardly to be supposed that germany would wait this last extremity to realize that she must abandon for ever her dream of universal domination relieve the world from the enervating menace of her military terrorism and redeem her past diabolical course by the repentant determination to join with her former enemies to deserve for mankind long years of perpetual peace with all the providential blessings of order freedom truly intellectual moral and material progress when the kaiser ordered his hordes to violate belgium's territory to overrun france in order to crush her out of existence as a military and political power preparatory to their triumphant march to st petersburg in his wild ambition which he made blasphemous by pretending that it was divinely inspired he felt sure that his really wonderful army which he believed was and would remain matchless would in a few weeks enter paris what a reverse of fortune what a downfall from extravagant expectations would be a return of the tide which after flowing to the very gates of paris spreading devastation and crimes all over the fair lands it submerged would ebb broken and powerless to berlin 
bringing the haughty tyrant to his knees before his victors. If such a day of deliverance is providentially granted the world, having deserved it by an indomitable courage in resisting oppression, history would again repeat itself, but with a different result. The French tricolore would once more enter proud Berlin, but this time it would not be alone to be hoisted over the conquered capital of the modern Huns, scarcely less savage than their forefathers. It would be entwined with the Union Jack of Great Britain and Ireland, the stars and stripes of the United States, the colors of Italy, and, I add with an inexpressible feeling of loyal and national pride, with the Dominion colors so brilliantly glorified by the heroism of our Canadian soldiers, who have proved themselves the equals of the bravest, through the protracted but ever-glorious campaign unfolded with those of Australia and South Africa into the glorious flag of the British Empire. When after the glorious battle of Vienna, the great Napoleon, who could have ruined forever the rising Prussian monarchy, entered Berlin at the head of his victorious legions, the new Caesar, then already the victim of his unlimited ambition, represented, though issued from a powerful popular movement, triumphant absolutism. In our days, on entering Berlin, as the final act of this wonderful drama, the entwined colors of the Allies would symbolize human freedom, delivering Germany herself and the whole world from autocratic rule. Such a memorable event taking place, and rank with the most remarkable in the world's history, the great satisfaction of all those who would have contributed to its achievement would be that the joint colors of the Allies would not be raised over Germany's capital to crush the defeated nation under despotic Caesarism, but to deliver her from autocratic tyrannical rule. Waving with dignity over the great empire they would have freed from the thraldom of absolutist militarism, they could be welcomed as the promise of the renewal, for her as well as for her victorious rivals, of the reign of justice, of Christian precepts, of right, order and peace, of honest and productive labor, of science applied to works creative of human happiness, instead of diverting the marvellous resources of the great modern discoveries to criminal uses for the calamitous misfortune of the peoples. I will close this work with the expression of two of the wishes I have most at heart, cherishing the confident hope that they will be realized. England, France, and the United States, fighting as they do for the triumph of such a sacred cause, should emerge indissolubly united from the great struggle they have pledged themselves to carry to a successful issue. I cannot conceive that so many millions of their heroic defenders will have given their lives only for a temporary achievement, soon to be forgotten. They will be gone forever. Their sacrifices will be eternal. They must bear permanent fruits. United in death, buried together in the soil of France, flooded with their blood, from their glorious graves they will implore their surviving countrymen to remain shoulder to shoulder in peace as they are in war. Their holocaust should be the holy seed from which loyal amity ought to grow ever stronger between the future generations of their countrymen who could not testify in a more eloquent and noble way their everlasting gratitude for the glorious heritage of permanent freedom they will have derived from their heroism. A most enthusiastic daily witness of the immortal deeds of the millions of our brothers, sons, and friends, fighting with such splendid courage in the land of my forefathers for our common cause, how often have I, for the last four years, ardently vowed to God from the very bottom of my heart, deeply moved by the reports of their noble achievements, that those who will rest for ever in the ground over which they fell heroically, may enjoy from above the inspiring spectacle of the union for the permanent triumph of liberty and Christian civilization, of the great nations for whose grand future they gave their lives. 
I also most earnestly hope that the more fortunate of our defenders, who will return either safe from the fields of battle, or proudly wearing the glorious wounds which will have crippled their bodies, but not their hearts, will enjoy from the sanctuary of their homes, made comfortable by their grateful compatriots, the profound satisfaction to see the holy union cemented on the thundering firing line perpetuated for the lasting prosperity and happiness of mankind. The last shadow of the recollections of the feuds of past ages between England and France should be forever sunk in patriotic oblivion, buried deep beneath the glory both valorous nations will have jointly reaped in their mighty efforts to rescue the world from the frightful wave of barbarism which they will have forced to recede all the well-wishers of peaceful and happy days for future generations are very much gratified at knowing that in joining with the allies in the mighty struggle they were carrying with such undaunted courage the great american republic was also inspired by a feeling of gratitude for france in remembrance of what she has done to help her to achieve her independence let us behold anew the inscrutable designs of providence nearly a century and a half has elapsed since france england and her american colonies seem to be for all times irreconcilable opponents what a change in destiny years have rolled by new and unforeseen conditions have been developed the world over gradually two great currents of thoughts and aspirations have been flowing with increased strength preparing a formidable clash which was to threaten civilization with utter destruction autocratic ambition was for many long years challenging political liberty to a deadly conflict at last from the cloudy sky came the flash of lightning and the thunderbolt was on the earth shaking it to its depths by the tremendous shock germany having fired the wonderful autocratic shot fully expected that her rivals would be thunderstruck beyond possibility of resurrection but to her great dismay the friends of political liberty the world over rallied as one man to its defence and germany trembled at seeing england burying forever all ill feelings against france her ancient foe rushing to her support with millions of her brave sons after having drawn around her ally the protecting chain of her matchless fleet another very discomforting surprise was in store for the cruel huns the american republic grateful to france for past services was also moved by renovated feelings of affection for the mother country from whom she had parted without disowning her determined to be at the forefront of the battle for the triumph of human freedom after unsuccessfully exhausting every means of bringing germany to her senses she clasped hands with england and france and valiantly rallied to their sides to share the merit and the glory of saving political liberty from the terrible teutonic onslaught in my humble but sincere and profound opinion the present spectacle offered to the world's admiration by the sacred and mighty union of the british empire france and the united states every patriotic home of theirs thrilling with undiminished enthusiasm for the success of their heroic efforts is a truly grand one inspiring unbounded faith in the future of humanity let no one forget for a moment that the present war certainly national so far as the existence of each one of the allied states is concerned is above all preeminently a world's conflict which favourable issue deeply concerns the destiny of all the peoples of the earthly globe the whole question is whether autocratic tyranny will henceforth rule the world or if humanity will yet enjoy the blessings of liberty of free institutions in all hearts must abide the supreme desire that when peace is restored with all and the only conditions to which they can agree the british empire france and the american republic will forever remain united to promote the prosperity and the welfare of all the nations of the earth large middle-sized or small the duty of those of imperialist proportions will be as hitherto performed by england and the united states in their democratic way 
to protect the independence of the small states, never aspiring to any territorial acquisitions but those accruing to them with the full and free consent of the new populations asking the protection of their aegis and the advantages of their union. When I consider the grand and magnificent part the three above-named leading nations can play for the happy future of humanity, by working hand in hand and shoulder to shoulder for general peace, order and prosperity, my heart is full with the ardent desire to witness them accepting that glorious task with the stern determination to accomplish it to its better end. In spite of the vicissitudes and the failings of their past, they have done a great deal for the general good. They can do still more in the future. Like every man bearing with fortitude the trials of life with the worthy design of profiting by the experience thus acquired to elevate himself to a higher conception of his duty, the British Empire, France, and the United States will undoubtedly emerge from behind the dark clouds of the present days with aspirations ennobled by the sacrifices they are making, purified by the sufferings and the holocaust of so many of their own, with a stronger will to help working out the world's destiny by maintaining permanent peace and good will amongst men. If they pursue that dignified course of high ideals, they will fully deserve the admiration and the gratitude of all those who will benefit by their examples, and reap the abundant fruits of their devoted and enlightened leadership. It is one of the blessings of true political liberty, when duly understood and intelligently practised, to produce a class of politicians and statesmen of wide experience, of commanding character, of high culture, of great attainments, with a superior training in the management of public affairs, who are readily acknowledged as national leaders by the people who confidently trust them, reserving, of course, their constitutional right to call new men to office whenever they consider in the public interest to do so. Those trusted leaders do not claim, as the German autocratic Kaiser, the power, by divine right, to do anything they please, asserting that in every imaginable case they do the will of the Almighty. When charged with the government of their country, they understand very well that their duty is to manage the national affairs under their responsibility, first to the divine ruler, as any other man in any other calling, secondly to those who, having required their services, have the constitutional right to call them to account for their stewardship. Just as confidence is the basis of sound national credit, trust on the part of the people and responsibility on that of the national leaders are the two cornerstones of free institutions. Great Britain, and her great autonomous colonies also, for many long years past, have been most fortunate in the choice of the national leaders whom they have successively entrusted with the affairs of state. In that momentous occurrence, more than four years ago, when the whole question whether Great Britain would go to war or not, was laid before the Imperial Parliament, supported by the strongest possible reasons in favour of the decision to accept the challenge of Germany, and fight with the firm determination not to sheathe the sword before victory was won, no British public man would have dared, like the German Emperor, to claim by divine authority the right to violate the solemn treaties the provisions of which his country was in honour and duty bound to carry out to the very letter. The commanding parts national leaders play in a free country, in consequence of the public confidence they inspire and enjoy, can have their counterparts in the great society of nations. Whatever shall be the final settlement of all the difficult matters brought up for solution by the war, it is certain that the management of the world's affairs will be well served by the legitimate influence of great nations, whose leadership will be beneficial just in proportion as it is itself directed by the true principles of political freedom, and an uncompromising respect of the rights of weaker nations always entitled to the fairest dealings on the part of their stronger associates in the great commonwealth of sovereign states. 
there cannot be the slightest doubt that the British Empire, France, and the United States, until providentially ordered otherwise, will hereafter be the three leading nations of the world. Their union maintained sacred in peace, as it is in war, will be the safest guarantee that the days of autocratic domination have ended. Henceforth the tide of political freedom will flow with increased rapidity and strength. The only danger ahead, against which it is always wise to provide with due care and foresight, is that which would be the result of abuse and wild expectations always sure to react in favour of absolutist principles. Political liberty and order, governmental authority and freedom, both well directed, must work hand in hand for the national welfare. The British Empire, France, and the American Republic are free countries. More and better than any others, they should and must, by example and friendly advice, lead the peoples in the successful practice of self-government considering more especially the part the british empire will be called upon to play in the reorganized world freed from autocratic terrorism we must not lose sight of the much larger place england's great autonomous colonies will occupy in the broadened english commonwealth we canadians together with our brethren from australia new zealand and south africa will have done our glorious share to win the war we shall have to perform with equal devotion the new duty of sharing the british empire's task in gradually elevating the nations to an enlightened practice of political liberty. Evidently to do so with the success this noble cause will deserve, we must first strive to utilize our admirable free institutions to the best advantage, for ourselves, for our own future, and for the grand destinies of our empire. As an instrument of good government, our constitutional charter is almost perfect, as much so as anything worldly can be. Let us never forget that the best weapon for self-protection may become useless, or even dangerous for us, if not handled with the required intelligence, justice, and skill. We would lose all claims to contribute guiding others in the enjoyment of free institutions, if we ourselves were mistaken in the proper working of our own constitution, from a misconception of its literal wording, or of its largeness of spirit. We must never challenge the truth that, quote, spirit giveth life, end quote. More than ever the supreme difficulties of governing numerous racial groups, issued from ancient stocks so long divided by endless feuds, the result of the many sudden changes of territorial limits to be wrought by the restoration of peace, will be very hard to settle satisfactorily. The task will require the constant effort of statesmanship of a high order. Many of those who will hereafter be trained to self-government will look to us for their guidance. We must give them the inspiring example of fair play, of justice for all, of unity of purpose, and aspirations in the diversity of ethnical offsprings. Need I say that the most urgent duty of all fair-minded Canadians is, and will ever be, to heartily join together, to bless our dear country with concord, good feeling, harmony, and kindly dispositions to grant an overflowing measure of justice to all our countrymen of all origins and creeds. Writing this book, with the express purpose of explaining and strongly disapproving the deplorable efforts of a few to deter my French-Canadian compatriots from doing their bounden duty through the dire crisis we are all undergoing, I will close these pages by calling anew upon my English-speaking countrymen not to judge them by the sayings and deeds of persons who can at times somewhat stir up dangerous prejudices, but who are utterly incompetent to lead them as they should and deserve to be. Silenced at last by a patriotic measure to censure any disloyal expression of sentiments, matters have easily resumed their regular and honourable course. All loyal citizens, throughout the length and breadth of the land, have, I am sure, much rejoiced at the loyalty with which the French Canadians, of all classes, 
religious, social, commercial, industrial, financial, agricultural, have united to obey a statute of military service to which many of them did not agree, as long as they had the constitutional right to differ from the opinion of the large majority of our people, but to the successful operation of which they rallied the moment it was the law of the land. The worthy leaders of our Church strongly recommended obedience to the decision of the constituted authority, firmly condemned any guilty attempt at disturbing public order, and ordered all the members of their flocks to fervously pray the Almighty for peace with victory for the Allies. Our, quote, pacifists at all hazards, end quote, once more silenced, this time by the very religious leaders under whose aegis they had shamefully tried to shield themselves, the patriotic impulse was moved to most commendable action. Without waiting for the call of the law, hundreds of young men from the better classes, from the universities and other educational institutions, well-educated, voluntarily enlisted and rallied to the colours. At least as much as in the other provinces, the class of our young manhood called by law heartily responded, all the real leaders of public opinion uniting to give the only advice loyal men could express. For one, I was most happy to ascertain how favourably Western public feeling was impressed by the new turn of thoughts and events in the province of Quebec. The reaction of sentiments operating both ways, in Ontario, the Western provinces and Quebec, augurs well for the final abatement of the excitement for which a time menaced our fair dominion with regrettable racial strifes so much to be deprecated. It can be positively affirmed that the whole people of Canada, east to west, north to south, are now more than ever a unit in their patriotic determination to fight the war to its final victorious issue. To this end, the two millions of French-British subjects in Canada, in perfect communion of thoughts and aspirations with the two millions of the neighbouring republic subjects of French-Canadian origin, are loyally doing, and will continue to do, their share. Their representatives at the front are gloriously fighting the common enemy. Their valour and their achievements during the Allies' offensive, so masterly planned and carried out by the commander-in-chief, Fach, have been worthy of their victories at Ypres, Vimy, Courcelette, Pachandelle. Many have, during the last three months, given their lives for the cause they defend. Many more have been wounded and are anxiously waiting their cure, when possible, to return to the field of honour. Daily reports from the front tell of their enthusiasm, of their bravery, of their heroism. The French Canadians, I have no hesitation whatever in vouching for it, will continue to bear stoically, with the sacrifices of so many kinds, the conflict imposes upon them. Though smarting, as all others, under the burden, yet they cheerfully pay the heavy taxes required from the country to meet our national obligations, the outcome of the war. So all is for the best under the strenuous present conditions of our national existence. In closing, I pray leave to reiterate, from the introduction to this work, the following lines expressing my most sincere and profound conviction. I hope, and most ardently wish, that all my readers will agree with me that next to the necessity of winning the war, and may I say, even as of almost equal importance for the future grandeur of our beloved country, range that of promoting by all lawful means harmony and good will amongst all our countrymen, whatever may be their racial origin, their religious faith, their particular aspirations not conflicting with their devotion to Canada as a whole, nor with their loyalty to the British Empire, whose grandeur and prestige they want to firmly help to uphold, with the inspiring confidence that more and more they will be the unconquerable bulwark of freedom, justice, civilization, and right. 
may I be allowed to conclude by saying that my most earnest desire is to do all in my power, in the rank and file of the great army of free men, to reach the goal which ought to be the most persevering and patriotic ambition of loyal Canadians of all origins and creeds and I repeat, wishing my words to be re-echoed throughout the length and breadth of the land I so heartily cherish, I have always been, I am, and will ever be, to my last breath, true to my oath of allegiance to my sovereign and to my country. End of chapter 39